You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. I am in my adopted hometown these days. I'm not from Philadelphia, but I often feel like I'm from Philadelphia. It's where my parents grew up. It's where I went to college. It's where I figure I'll probably end up someday. We're in a wonderful studio, Milk Boy Studios here in, in Philadelphia, and the walls are, are filled with incredible gold records from Pretty much every superstar you can imagine from Britney Spears to Beyonce, who've all recorded in these halls. I'm here because I'm going to have a conversation with Jennifer Weiner. And um, for those of you who know Jennifer Weiner, the author of In Her Shoes and so many other wonderful novels, I- I'm not the only fangirl out there. I, she's done a wonderful job of, of bringing the real lives of women, the way we think, the way we act, the way we shop to the page. I, I was thinking about Jennifer the other day, actually, as I put together the short toast that I gave at my husband's 60th birthday party. I was pointing out how, despite the fact that we are very, very different people, we have this wonderful, at least I think wonderful, um, relationship and camaraderie. And one of the differences that I highlighted was the fact that he is much more likely to watch Breaking Bad I'm much more likely to tune in to The Bachelor or Bachelorette. And when I tune in to The Bachelorette, Jennifer Weiner is right there by my side because she is the, I'm not sure if it's official or or not, but she is on Twitter fire and, and often shows up on morning TV the day after to recap with the folks at Good Morning America what happened the night before on The Bachelor. It's not just my Guilty pleasure and Jennifer's guilty pleasure. Jill Biden, um, Dr. Jill Biden routinely tweets along as do so many other fabulous women because it's just like a train wreck that you can't stop watching and it always makes you feel a little bit better about your own life. Today on Her Money, we are going to talk about a lot of different subjects relating to money and marriage. Jennifer has been very open about the fact that she and her husband don't quite see things eye to eye when it comes to their finances. We'll talk a little bit about divorce. Jennifer's been through that, as have I. We'll talk about women in the workplace and how, to my dismay, we have still not gotten to the point where women are as supportive of other women as they should be. So let's just dive right in. Jennifer, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for having me here. It's um, it's always nice to have a podcast that I can sort of roll out of bed and into the studio for. So well, here we are. We are in Philly. Mm-hmm. I was here last night. We're actually at Milk Boy Studios, mm-hmm. which is um, 
owned by a childhood friend of mine. And oh, isn't it a cool place? It is a super cool place. My daughter took classes at School of Rock in the same building. So I'm very familiar with the whole setup here. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. Very, very, very cool. So I decided that I would call you to be on the podcast. I've been sort of thinking, okay, how can I get yes. Jen on the podcast? And I Googled Jennifer Weiner and money. Mm-hmm. And this fascinating story that you wrote for Refinery29 about your differences financially mm-hmm. with your new husband. My Congratulations new husband. on that. Thank you very much. How did this story come to be? Well, I've always known that Bill and I have very different attitudes towards spending. I like to buy things and he it's it's like losing a finger every time he has to like pay for something that's more than like $50. Um we dated in our 20s and then we broke up and then I got married, I had kids, I wrote some books, blah blah blah. The marriage ends and Bill and I get back in touch. And he comes to my house in Philadelphia and I'm like, I have to show you something. I had this picture of us together from like 20 years before. And I take out the picture and I look at the picture and then I look at him and I realize he is wearing the exact same shirt in the picture. Wow. That 20 years later, he's like, what's the problem? It still fits. And I'm like, <laughs> God help us all. Like, I mean, and, and some of that is just like men in clothing, which is an entirely different conversation. But no, I married someone, um, And it's interesting because he grew up with a lot of financial security. His dad was a lawyer. His mom stayed home. I don't think he had to worry about anything ever in terms of, you know, was the, were the bills getting paid? Would he be able to go to the college he wanted to? And I had that lifestyle until I turned 16 and my dad left. And we went from being very comfortably middle class to like when the refrigerator broke, I remember my mom having to call her mom to like lend us money to buy a new one. So very different situations. And it's interesting because you'd think that he would be the more free spending one and I would be like, you know, clinging on to every dollar I earned, but not so much. I I think it's a little like religion in that way. My father was raised in this very almost orthodox Jewish family. And he wanted us to have traditions, but he could not wait to get as far away from that as possible. Hmm. And and I, I almost think that it's a little bit rebellious that we go against whatever we had. Interesting. 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 Well, I mean, my what I was left with because of what happened with my parents was – a, an absolute terror of running out of money. Like I, I remember when I was a sophomore in college, I went to register for my classes and they sort of pulled me out of the line and into the bursar's office. And they're like, no one sent a check for this semester. You can't sign up for classes till somebody pays. And I was like, I'm 18. Like I don't have, I don't have $15,000 in my pocket. So my mom and I took out loans and, you know, I, I paid them off until I sold good and bad. I thought I'd be like paying those loans forever and ever. And and so I can't stand the idea of like getting a bill and not being able to pay it or paying late fees or getting calls from creditors. Because after my dad left, you know, he didn't really leave a forwarding address 
but he still had his credit card. So we would get calls from people from American Express and Barclays and Citibank and like, where's our money? And I mean, these bill collectors, and I know it's an awful job, and I'm sure it must be a very dehumanizing job, and you're seeing and hearing people at their worst and most duplicitous, but we were kids, and they were mean. Like, we would say, our dad's not here, and they'd say, where is he? Put him on the phone. We know he's there. We're going to call your neighbors and have them look in your driveway to see if his car's there. How terrifying. It was awful. It was awful. And like, I mean, I remember my brother who was like nine at the time saying, my dad doesn't live here anymore. And and the woman on the phone saying, didn't anyone ever tell he was wrong to lie? Wow. Right? I mean, talk about scarred, you know? It's like, so um, I got to I gotta know that like everything's paid. Like I never want the phone to ring and it to be somebody saying, where's our money? But other than that, it's like, you know, if I know that I can afford something and I want it, like generally I will get it do for you, the most part. Do, do you think that growing up in an environment where you were worried about money inspired you to want to make a lot of money? Yeah, 100%. I – did not want to have kids until I had a million dollars. I don't even know how I came up with that money. It's like Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers movie being like one million dollars. But like <laughs> that was the number I settled on. I was like, I'm going to have a million dollars in the bank because that in my head meant no kid of mine is ever going to go register for classes and get told she can't. So yeah, I mean, I was very determined. And of course, I was a writer, which is not one of your more lucrative professions. And so I was always freelancing or trying to sell something or writing something on the side or working on a novel or working on a screenplay. Like I really, I wanted to do it by the time I turned 30. And I wanted it to be like a significant chunk of money. And it really did drive me. Which is a good thing. I mean, I look at my daughters and I'm like, what's going to drive them? I'm like, maybe I should, you know, set up some kind of like artificial deprivation. <laughs> like, just be like, oh, sorry, uh, I didn't didn't get paid this uh, month. Uh, go get a job. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting. When you have enough, then it does feel like you have to set up artificial restrictions for your kids for their benefit. Exactly, and and for their benefit is is 100 percent right because. I I don't want them growing up entitled or spoiled or thinking that they were born on third base and hit a triple, mm -hmm. or as they say about Donald Trump, born on third base and thinking they invented baseball. <laughs> I love that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's really, really interesting is sort of how do you instill a work ethic in kids who, for all intents and purposes, don't have to work? Like, what do you do? Exactly. I, I think about that a lot. I do as well. My my kids are, one is just coming out of college, one is just going into college, mm -hmm. and setting up budgets with my son for yeah. next year when he's living on his own, and, and telling him he's, a, a lot of his friends are finance majors, consulting types, uh -huh. they all have jobs already, he mm -hmm. wants to do something a little more esoteric, and uh -huh. he doesn't, right. and telling him, you know, you can't move in with your friends until you are self-supporting. Mm -hmm. And yes, we will help you if you need help with the rent, but you've got to be earning money. Exactly. Yeah. Is, is a, a line that we, we definitely had to draw. I want to come back to the shopping for yes. a second. Mm -hmm. So you and your new husband, Bill, uh -huh. very, very different very on the different. shopping. So how have you handled those differences? Well, I, we've kept our money separate. 
I mean, that's the short answer. And if I want a painting and I'm like, I can afford that painting, I'm not taking money out of your pocket, you know. Um, so we haven't done the thing of combining our finances yet. And I think that what we're going to do eventually, and by eventually, I mean pretty soon, is we'll have a joint account. We'll both contribute to it, you know, from each according to his or her abilities. And that'll pay the household bills. That'll pay, you know, the, the power and the water and the gas and all that stuff. Um, but it's so far it's sort of it's it's been like this this very strict separation of church and state which and we haven't had any problems i mean he's not rolling his eyes at things that i'm buying or even like seeing the bills at the end of the month like i just don't want to be like in that like you know the lockhorns cartoon where like the bill comes at the end of the month and the husband's like yelling at the wife and she's like, I needed that dress or whatever. It's like, cause I mean, the truth is I do need dresses. Like every once in a while I have to go out in public and like look presentable. So I have to buy a dress and it has to be like a new dress because thank you, social media. Every time you wear something they, to like give a, give a speech or you're out in public, it's like there's 20 pictures of you on like 50 different websites. So it's like, I guess I can't wear that again or people are going to think I only have that one dress. Yeah, it's Instagram really, has been very expensive for me. Exactly. And it's not like, just for me, for my daughter. Right. I, I, you're 19, <laughs> you, you are so conscious of what things cost mm. and what you are, you're so conscious of what people have seen you in before. It's right. just, it's painful. Well, I guess I'm lucky insofar as my older daughter, who's about to turn 13, could, could care less about fashion. Like you could not pay her to care about clothes. And she goes to a school where she wears a uniform, so I don't have to worry about any of that. But, but my younger one, like, oh, I, I see what's coming. And it's that. It's like, mom, I need the rag and bone jeans because everybody's got them and I can't have, you know, and I, I, I was in a picture with this and I already wore that. And yeah. Boy, how do you feel about um things on sale? Do you are you a are you a bargain shopper or are you just a go out and get it when I want it shopper? I would say that depends because I've read and I'm sure you've seen the same thing like if you buy it on sale but never wear it or never use it and just bought it because it was a bargain, that is not a bargain. So I guess I'd rather invest in something that I love or that I know that I'm really going to get a lot of use from. I mean, if I can buy something on sale that that fits and looks good, then of course, like I'll get two of it. But most of the time... Um, I, I'd say with clothes, especially like it, it pays to sort of spend up front and then amortize it. Like just be able to like, okay, like I know these shoes cost a fortune, but they go with this and this and this, and I can wear them here and I can take them there, you know, but I, I do sort of do that math in my head. Um, you know, and in, in terms of buying stuff on sale, like another thing I never want to be is a hoarder, mm -hmm. like somebody who just has like boxes and boxes of like stuff they ordered online late at night or bought at Marshall's because it was there and you don't even like take it out of the bag or the box. So I'm so glad to hear you say that my experiment, which has been going on since December 26th, okay. I have not bought anything on sale this year, huh. which is, you know, a, a You're convoluted paying way of thinking. Yes, I'm paying retail. That's like I against am, our religion. I, have, I know. That's I've hard. I've sworn off sample sales. Okay. But for that very reason, because I would go in and I would buy three things because 
they were inexpensive. And they said Chanel or Jimmy Choo or, or whatever. Or whatever right. and not wear them. Yes. And, and so it is, I have bought fewer more expensive things this year, but mm-hmm. I like them and I'm wearing them. Well, so that's it's working. What they, that's what they say is like, you know, buy one perfect strand of pearls and the white button down that looks, you know, great with everything. And it's very hard to find those things, right. of course. But, but it makes me feel very French. Right? Yeah. And, and French is good. French right? is they're very, they're very chic. Can you tie a scarf? I can tie a scarf. Seriously? Can well, you show I me did, how? I can show you how, but I, I literally sat there with, I think it was Glamour Magazine at one point, right. opened it up, and mm. they had the diagram about how to do it, and I, I did I it. I think and I've seen that diagram, and I still can't do I, it. Yes, I, I can do need... it. And I can show you. Okay. I can show you. Thank I you. will We'll do that. Let me take a breather to tell you that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time where you'll find more conversations like this one with Jennifer Weiner, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, divorced, or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So you've been writing a lot for the New York Times. Yeah. Um, and I was really taken by your story about Mean Girls in the Nursing Home. Yes. A lot of people responded to that one. It's, it's like there's this thing that's going on and no one was talking about it. And then I talked about it and now I, I hear from people every day that's like, that happened to my mom, that happened to my aunt, that happened to my sister. People getting bullied in these places. And, and like you said, you know, we all think we left that behind when the junior high doors closed behind us and not so much. So how do you, I mean, you, you dealt with it by finding a friend for your Nana, which, which was, you know, so sweet, but no matter what age or stage you're at, mm-hmm. how do you deal with this and you're raising girls. I'm raising girls. Um, it's hard. I, I feel like I tell them the same things that my mother told me that were of no help whatsoever. Like just be yourself and people will like you. Well, I was myself and no one liked me. I'm I mean, sure it really, <laughs> no, it was, it really took a while. I mean, like no one got my jokes, you know, like I was like 11 years old and, and my parents had sort of, my dad was a psychiatrist. My mother was a teacher. Um, they talked to me like I was a grown up, sort of from a very young age. And so, I, I couldn't code switch. I couldn't like talk to kids the way other kids talk to each other. And so like I had no friends, but it's, it's impossible. Really. It's like you can't make someone be friends with right. any, you can optimize the conditions in which a friendship might form. And with my older daughter, she was at a school where they were having social issues. There were, it was a very small school. There were very few girls. My daughter was very unhappy and we ended up taking her out of that school, moving her like over the summer. And of course, having to eat the tuition at school number one, because we pulled her out so late. And that was a, that was a tough financial decision because it wasn't cheap. It was a, it was a significant chunk of money, but it's like, okay, We've got our kids' happiness on the one hand and this chunk of change on the other. What does money buy that's important? And what I hope it bought my daughter was a chance to 
be herself, be in her own skin, be a little more comfortable, maybe make some friends. And she has. It's it's a much better fit for her. But I don't know the answer. I mean, and I don't know why we as women are so hard on ourselves and so hard on each other. I, I don't understand. And I don't understand why it persists when women are in their 80s and their 90s. And my Nana's 100 now. Wow. And it's still going on. And it's very, very troubling to me in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I, I've worked in environments where women are not supportive of other women. I know. And, you know, it's sometimes it's it's this feeling from women who I, I suppose have, you know, really had to struggle long before we were there and right. paid their dues yeah. in a way that, you know, I'm sure I can't understand right. that how hard it was for them. But you would think that it would be a, a rising tide rather than a, well, you got to do it too. Yeah. A, a rising tide rather than like a ladder pulling the sort of I've made it and now you can't. You have to work just as hard as I did. I mean, it was, I experienced the same thing and it was depressing. Um, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a reporter who was doing a story on sexual harassment and she sort of was asking, it was, it was a call for entries basically. It was like, tell us what happened to you. And, and certainly I could remember things happening at my first jobs and at my second, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was working in restaurants or whatever. But when I thought about my job jobs, the men I can remember really encouraged me, really supported me, really were fans of my work. Mm-hmm. And some of the women were awful, yeah. like truly awful. And it made me think very hard and be very intentional when I was hiring people about the kind of boss I wanted to be. And how I wanted to treat the people who worked for me and how I wanted to sort of support them and help them because it was, it was bewildering. It was like, well, what, what do you mean you're going to like treat me this way or talk about me behind my back or undermine me or, you know, forget to put my byline on the story that I worked so hard on? Like, you know, I, I, I was actually, I'm doing a nonfiction collection. So I was writing about this after I sold my first book. I sold it in the spring of 2000. It came out in the spring of 2001. So I kept my job for a year. I was a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer, but everybody there knew that I'd sold. It was a two-book deal. It was for $500,000. Everybody knew that it had been reported. Mm -hmm. Some people treated me the same way they had, same way they always had, no difference. Some people who I really hadn't known were were suddenly very eager to get to know me and, hey, you know, and how did you do that? And who was your agent? And can you help me? Or my kid wants an internship in publishing or like whatever it was. And some people just decided that it was their job to make my life a living hell, you know, and they and those people were women. And it was just awful. And I, I don't understand it. Like to this day, I don't understand it. But I know that if I'm ever in the, in the position of, of being someone's boss or being someone's manager, I mean, I have an assistant right now. I have like a housekeeper. I have someone who helps with my kids. Like I, I'm not exactly like running the world, but like if I'm ever in a position to support women, mentor them, help them get to the next step. Like that's how I'm going to be. Absolutely. I'm so proud. I have this clique of former assistants Mm -hmm. who are at Forbes Mm -hmm. and NerdWallet and 
are I I for me I take a lot of pride in how well they're doing. I think that's fantastic. I mean, my my editor is the same way. Like every single one of her assistants has gone on to edit at different houses, different imprints, but they've all you know they they've all risen, and that to her is. That's more to her credit, I think, than like any promotion she ever got, every raise, every bonus. It's like, look at this is what I this is my legacy, really. And we all want to leave a good legacy and not a bad taste in people's mouths. Absolutely. Before we wrap it up, can we just talk about this? And you alluded it to it before this quest for perfection Ugh, among yes. women. And and you've been very vocal about how mm-hmm. you wish we could get off that. I'm 51 uh-huh. and I'm at the age where my friends are starting to seriously talk about having work done. And it scares me to death. It's like, my attitude is like, are you a model? Are you an actress? Are you being paid to look a certain way? No? Well, then why would you want, why would you let somebody, you know, and I understand like everybody wants to look, we all want to look like the best versions of ourselves. So I, I kind of go back and forth. It's like, well, if, if getting your eye bags lasered off or whatever, makes you feel better. But then it's like, if my kids aren't ever seeing any women look their age, like, aren't they just going to beat themselves up even more when they start aging? I, I worry about this a lot. And and I worry that we're finding new ways and places to be awful. Like it used to be like, you got a break when you were pregnant. Like, nobody expected you to be, like, a sex pot. But then, like, you know, thank you, Chrissy Teigen. Exactly. I mean, and and she's now, she had her baby, I guess, like, 10 minutes ago. And she's <laughs> posting Instagram shots where it's like, you know, her hair is perfect. Her <sighs> face is perfect. Her cleavage is perfect. It's like, why? Right. Why? We don't need a makeup artist in the hospital. It, people are doing that, I though. Know. Did you see? The New York Times had a style section about there are women who have their glam squads at the ready. So that first picture that they Insta of them and the baby, they're going to look good. And they talk about like, you know, yeah, with my first baby, I was, I was sweaty and my hair was a mess. And I was like, cause you just had a baby. You just like pushed a person out of you. Like, of course you didn't look great. Like what message are we sending? If it's like, you know, here I am with my newborn, I look perfect. When do you not get to look perfect then? I mean, if, if you don't get a pass during labor, you know, or I mean, the the idea that like you can't look your age quote unquote that that people are just going to be vicious if you you know and and i remember reading recently like christy brinkley was somewhere and she looks fantastic and but then it was like okay well what do you do christy brinkley and what she does is spend all damn day drinking apple cider and doing pilates and getting laser peels I don't want to do that when I'm 60. Well, I want to do I that wanna, now. I don't want to spend my money on that. No. I'd rather spend my money on on trips. things. Yeah, on on shows, trips and shows, memories, and going to see Hamilton, which is a fortune. Yes, but you know what? That uh, I took both of my daughters. I went. Yeah, I yeah. took I I took Lucy, and it was so amazing. And I'm like, I want Phoebe to see this. I want Phoebe to see this now with yeah. this cast at this moment. And I sucked it up and I paid whatever StubHub was charging. And I consider that money well spent. It was, it was an, it was an absolute fortune. I'm sure if I told my mother what it was, she'd die on the spot. But to me, that was worth it. Yeah. And I think it's all about what's worth it to you. And at this point, like I, you know, and again, I read this somewhere, but it's, it's more important to spend money on things, 
on memories basically than on stuff because stuff you get used to. You see it every day. It's like those fantastic earrings or that gorgeous couch or whatever it is. You see it and you see it and you see it and then it becomes meaningless. But that show that you saw or that great trip that you took or that day that you spent with your kid where you like went to the Shake Shack and went to Please Touch and all that, like that's what you remember and that's where you spend your time and your money. 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. The Bachelor. Oh, oh my God. I, I'm obsessed. I can't explain why. I, I feel like it's sort of a mashup of like every happily ever after fairy tale plus every chance for feminist critique and sort of, um, you know, hate watching slash critical viewing sort of like, let me show you Lucy and Phoebe, who are my daughters. Let me show you how they are constructing the myth and the performance of love and desire. I feel like I spend those nights sitting next to you and watching the Twitter feed and oh, it's God. so much, it's fun. And you it's- know, of all the things I've done, it's like, you know, best-selling author, New York Times contributing writer, bachelor expert. Like, I think that's the one that I'm proudest of. I, I think that's, I- it's, it's what I was born for. It really is. <laughs> Clearly. Clearly. Thank, thank you for doing this with me. Thank you for being here. I want to be your friend. pleasure. Aww. Thank you. So we have a question we ask many people. It's our little version of a Proust questionnaire. Okay. Power, mm-hmm. fame, love, money. Rank order them. Wow. Love, power, money, fame. Because I guess if you have power, then you have money. Well, what is it? First you get the power, then you – first you get the sugar, then you get the power, then you get the women. Is that how it goes? <laughs> but no, I love, of course. I mean, you know, if you, if you have no love, you have nothing. Um, and, and fame, I would put at the very bottom because like, boy, oh boy, is that a, a double-edged thing. You yeah. know, money can be too. And I guess love can be too. But fame especially, it's like, eh, you know. Thank you. Thank you for being here for this wonderful conversation, Crash. We've touched on – I think uh, everything but sex. Every next time around. Next time. All next right. time. Thanks. Absolutely. And thanks, Jennifer. I'm looking forward to that next conversation. Now we're going to your questions. As always, we want to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, and at jeanchatsky.com. Kelly Hultgren, our associate producer, has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kelly. Hi, Jean. How was your weekend? Oh my gosh, my weekend was so good. For those of you who have not been keeping up with me on social media. My son Jake graduated from Northwestern University this past weekend and it was, it was terrific. It was terrific. Yeah. I mean, I think he's overwhelmed with good and mixed feelings. It's hard to leave college. It's bittersweet. Yeah. But, um, such a wonderful weekend with great friends and Seth Myers was the graduation speaker and he just killed it. He was, he was really, really funny. And, you know, seeing your child walk across that stage is pretty amazing. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's go to questions. What do we have this week? Our first question is from Twitter. We were asked, what are some of the best ways to grow your network once someone is in the professional world? I tend to think growing your network is best done one person at a time. I mean, of course, you should join organizations that have something to do with the career that you're trying to grow. And it's important to update your LinkedIn profile and to make the right connections there. 
But the kind of people that will turn up for you later in life are people that you've actually made personal connections with. And that means asking somebody to go to coffee, taking people out to lunch, picking up the phone and having an actual conversation rather than just going back and forth through email or um on the internet. And and I think this is hard and, and just I'm going to digress for just a second, but I I do find that this is harder for young people to do. I mean, with my own son, he's had a couple of internships, he's done really well, and and I keep encouraging him to pick up the phone and call the people that he's worked with and have a conversation and talk about what he wants to do in the future. It it's it's hard. It feels it's a movement that doesn't feel aggressive to me, but I think, and, and you can tell me better, I think it feels aggressive to people who are millennials younger than me. I think it does because they were brought up with texting being the predominant form of communication, especially on the phone. And I think it's it's really shown that verbal communication face-to-face is a dying art. And I think it's so important that we try to work back to that. Well, you do it. I mean, you're, for people who don't know you, you're 25 years old. You pick up the phone. So how do you, how did you get over that? Honestly, I think my parents forced me or. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think. Way to go. Yeah, no, I think they were really good about parenting and making sure that I wasn't face down in my phone all the time, that I looked up and I looked someone in the eye or I picked up the phone to call someone. They really just tried to cultivate that skill. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So even if it's that's the message, even if you're uncomfortable, just try to make yourself do it and it will get better. Right. It'll get better. Okay. let's take another one. Sure. We have a question from Gladys. She emailed you. She is a big fan, has followed you for many, many years. Thank you, Gladys. And her question references online money management. She writes, most well-known budget software companies require online access to your credit cards, bank and retirement accounts. What are your thoughts about allowing access and centralizing all of your personal finances in one place? Do you think it's safe? If so, which money management softwares do you recommend? So the reason that they require this access, and it's often read-only access, is that when they're aggregating your information, they're doing so to track your spending patterns so that they can show you where your money is going and help you budget. Um, they have bank level security. It doesn't worry me. I've been an advocate of online banking and all of these programs for many, many years. I like mint.com. I like level money. I like you need a budget. And I like most bank and, and, um, credit union online platforms because simply banking that way and watching the flows of your money through your own accounts can be a very, very helpful budgeting tool. People who bank online, and that's the vast majority of us these days, we're online looking at our own money much more often than people who still do it the old-fashioned way. And simply looking gives you a lot of information because you get a real-time snapshot of what you have and where it is. And so I'm a fan and I'm not worried. But to have a strong password is probably oh, of course, the most important thing. Of course, One of the most thank you for things. the re- thank you for the reminder. Yeah, especially you know we know password security is a big problem. The folks at LifeLock, we've done work with them. They're on this all the time, and and they remind us constantly that the 
most used password is still one two three four five six, which is insane. Insane. It's okay if you want to use weak passwords for sites that you don't visit very often, sites on which you're not transacting. But when we talk about your banks, your credit cards, anything where money is going back and forth. The password has to be at least eight characters. It has to be letters, numbers, and symbols, and they should all come together to form some sort of a nonsense word that doesn't exist in the dictionary. And I'm guilty of this. We should change them often, too. Correct? We should change them often.、Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, just I should just say because the the folks at LifeLock gave us a sneak peek last week, they have a new app. It's called Identity, and it's great for all of this password stuff. Oh, cool! Yeah, it, I was really impressed. Nice. I'll, yeah, I'll look into it. Thank you so much, Kelly, and thanks everybody for those questions. Just remember, whatever is on your mind, we want to talk about it. So reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, and JeanChatsky dot com. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. On this week's Thrive segment, we're talking about debt. D E B T debt. If you've got podcasts to catch up on, make sure you check out the episode that we did with Dave Ramsey and his daughter Rachel Cruz. Especially if you've got questions about debt, because we covered an awful lot of them there. Today's Thrive segment is all about that four-letter word that comes with a whole lot of emotion. D E B T debt. We are talking about debt because. As of right now, U.S. credit card debt is on track to reach one trillion dollars this year, nearing the record high of one point oh two trillion that was set in January of two thousand eight, i.e., right before the economy went to hell in a handbasket. So, is it time to worry? That's the question, and the answer is maybe. The the growth is a sign that people are more comfortable carrying debt or spending money that they don't have, and that perhaps memories of the crisis, which after all was eight years ago, have faded a little bit into the background. So if you're one of those people, not paying off your credit cards in full at the end of each month, you could be opening the door to a personal financial crisis. If you feel like you're drowning in debt, or you just want to take a more Practical approach to paying it off. Here's what I want you to do. First, start living below your means. And notice, I didn't say within your means. I said below it. Your debt will be relative to how much you make. But if you're constantly using a credit card to supplement your income and your debt levels are rising month to month or even quarter to quarter, this is a sign that you are headed for trouble. Second. Stop being an ostrich. In other words, get your head out of the sand before you start tackling your debt. You need to know what you're up against. Sit down, make a list of every single debt you have, what the interest rate is, and what the minimum monthly payment is. And while you're at it, schedule calendar reminders for your payments. And third, aim high. You want to rank your debts from highest to lowest interest rate, and that's the order in which you want to pay them down. Paying off the highest interest rate credit card that you have puts the most money back in your pocket. But by the way, it never hurts to call your credit card company to see if they will give you a lower interest rate. The folks at CreditCards.com recently tested this, and they found that in The majority of cases, credit card companies were actually willing to give their customers a break. All right, quick, let's review. Take a look at your bank statements. Make sure you are living below your means. Make sure that you are 
listing all your debts and tackling them from the highest interest rates to the lowest interest rates. And then once you're out of debt, make sure that you're not getting yourself back in. I want to thank you all for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jennifer Weiner for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I will catch you next Monday night on Twitter during The Bachelorette. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to subscribe to this show at iTunes. Please share it with any woman in your life who you think needs to know a little bit more about what's going on with her finances and take the time if you don't mind to leave us a review. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when we will be talking with the wonderful Renee Seiler. I'm sure that you all remember Renee from her days hosting the CBS Morning Show. These days, she's focused on her website. It's called The Good Enough Mother, and it makes me feel better about my life and my parenting skills on a regular basis. We'll answer your questions as well, and we'll always have a terrific way for you to thrive. Thanks for listening, and tune in then. Mm -hmm.